Good morning. I think we forgot to mention that our middle schoolers and our high school students are off on their uh, their winter retreat together. Uh, they come back tomorrow. Um, so if you remember to today and tomorrow to be praying for uh, for the students that are there as they uh, as they learn about Jesus. Uh, I know there are many students that are there that do not know Christ that have been coming to our youth group for whatever reason. Um, but but don't know him yet, so please be praying. Um, you know the passage we're in, we're, we're in 13, uh, 1 Samuel 13 through 15 today, and, and we'll look at a few different chunks. But first, uh, Psalm 14 starts off, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and it's interesting, I never had noticed this before. It doesn't say the fool says in his mind there is no God, but the fool says in his heart there is no God. Many people think, many people believe that there is a God. Many are convinced on an intellectual level that God exists. My suspicion is this whole room is in that camp, that we believe God exists. Uh, many people believe God exists and even acknowledge that with, with their lips, but there's a disconnect connect from from that that belief in their mind to the rest of themselves to the their heart and to their actions um, they, they don't live a life that says there's a God the, the fool in his heart says there's no God the fool in his life says there is no God in our passage today we see the foolishness uh, of the king of Israel King Saul who certainly, wasn't supposed to be a fool, but but he lived in so many ways like there was like there was no God, even though he acknowledged the Lord. Let's start with our truth statement. Follow God by trusting and obeying his word completely. But if you fail, don't minimize your sin or try to redefine obedience. I'll give that to you one more time. Follow God by trusting and obeying his word completely. And we're going to see Saul's struggles with that today. But if you fail, don't minimize your sin. Don't redefine your sin like Saul will do, or redefine obedience. I don't know about um, you, but the word obey um, kind of gets at me. Um, there, there's something in me as like a fully grown man. <laughs> like I don't want to be told to obey if I'm honest. Um, and now I want my kids to obey, obviously, right? If you have employees, uh, if you manage people in any way, you want them to obey. I hope we would all agree that it's good for people to obey the laws of the land. Um, but there's something in me, and I'm guessing it's not just me, but there's something in us that we don't like to be told that we're supposed to obey the Lord. And I think it's hardwired in us that, 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 that there's something in us, it's, it's programmed that, that, that we don't like that. And we need to be reprogrammed to learn how good it is to see how good it is to obey Jesus our Lord. So in chapters 13 through 15, we'll see examples of Saul failing multiple times, failing to trust the Lord, failing to completely obey what he's been commanded, to completely obey the Lord's word. And that'll be contrasted. We get one story in the middle with Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is Saul's son. And Jonathan, even though we don't have much to go on, we can see that Jonathan wholeheartedly trust Yahweh. And the author helps us see the foolishness of Saul. And I think this text, this passage urges us 
Don't be a fool like King Saul. Trust and obey the Lord. So in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we come to uh, fearful circumstances for Israel, as, as you heard when Sherry read. Um, Saul had been told back in chapter 9, hey, you need to take care of the Philistines. And, and he hasn't done that yet. The Philistines were a problem for Israel. We heard they were, they were scared uh, of the Philistines. Well, Jonathan... He goes in this first battle, he goes and, and he, he uh, goes against this garrison of Philistines and defeats them. And, and this is a good thing. It's, it's a small battle, but it's, it's a, it is a good thing that, that the Philistines um, have been defeated by Israel. However, it's, it seems like it was, um, I don't know if, when I was a kid, um, I found like a hornet's nest once. I'm not, this isn't smart obviously. Um, I, I found this hornet's nest and I kind of knew what it was and, and I took a stick and I just, right. And then I ran off and like maybe one of them got me or two, but like it wasn't that big of a deal, but man, that hornet's nest went crazy. That's kind of what happened here. I mean, Jonathan wasn't being foolish. He did what he was supposed to do, but the Philistines are freaking out. Okay. And they gather this massive army. They muster up all the people that they can. And Israel is terribly outnumbered. It's not, it's not even close. And they're, they're afraid now, right? So it says that the people hide. They're hiding in caves. They find holes to hide in. They're hiding behind rocks. It says they're hiding in tombs, which sounds really gross and scary. They're, they're hiding in cisterns, anywhere they can go. And then the people that are still with Saul, they're hiding by, behind him. They're afraid. And the people are just dispersing. Now, Saul had been told that he needed to wait for Samuel, that after seven days, Samuel would be there, but Samuel was late. And it doesn't seem like a stretch to, to, to think that maybe Saul wondered if Samuel was even going to show up at all. So the people are scattering from Saul. And you can imagine the pressure of this new king here, right? He's the one who's in charge. He's supposed to be leading the people. And I'm, I'm sure all of us have probably at some point been in charge of something that didn't feel like it was going very well. And, and, and it seemed like, like the chances of it going well were, were, were just slipping right through your fingers. And what you needed to do was, was act. You, you had to do something to turn this thing around. Well, the people that remain with Saul, they're leaving, and he feels like he needs to act. So, verse 9, says, he says, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, right? Like, isn't that how it always goes? I mean, not that we've been in this situation, but you know what I'm saying. Um, Saul went out to greet him. Right? Like things are good. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered a mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Sam, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince 
over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul knew what he was supposed to do. He knew he was supposed to wait for Samuel, but the pressure was mounting. His men were scared. Samuel hadn't shown up yet, so he decided, I've got to do something. I've got to act. And this is what we want leaders to do in life. We, we expect our leaders to act. So he tried to do something something that, that seemed godly to him. He makes this offering, which was not his to do. He's a king, not a priest. And Samuel makes it clear that in doing what he did and not waiting and making this offering, that he'd broken the very commands of the Lord. You remember the kids game, Simon Says, right? Like, do we all remember this game? Simon Says, you know, do this, you do this, you rub your tummy, right? You're out if Simon says, clap your hands, and instead you snap, right? You, you know the rules to this game. Well, Saul thought that he could bend the rules. He, he, thought that the game, he thought he could bend the rules of the game to work in his favor, and he didn't understand how important it is to follow what God says, that he couldn't redefine and, and manipulate what obedience looked like. So Samuel calls him foolish for not trusting the Lord, for not obeying the Lord. And the consequence is the kingdom, it's going to be taken from him. It's going to be given to someone else that the Lord will choose. Well, the Philistines continue to be a menace to Israel. And they're, they're really, uh, they're controlling Israel. They're sending raiding parties from north, south, east, west, all over the place. Um, the Philistines wouldn't even let the Israelites have blacksmiths. So if, if the Israelites wanted to like get their, um, their farming equipment worked on or sharpened, they had to go to the Philistine blacksmith. And this meant that Israel had no weapons. They didn't have real swords. They didn't have spears. Only Saul and Jonathan had this. In chapter 14, we get to see the confidence that Jonathan has in the Lord after seeing Saul's foolish disobedience. Jonathan, we're told, leaves the Israelite camp with just his armor bearer. And what's interesting is he doesn't tell his dad. Right? He, he sneaks out without his dad knowing. They sneak up this rocky crag near the Philistine camp. And this is what this is what we heard in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of, uh, to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And that's just Hebrew trash talk right there. Okay? And then he says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you hear the difference between Jonathan and his dad and the way they talk? The words of Jonathan sound nothing like we've heard what we've heard uh, of Saul in chapter 13 or what we'll hear in 14 and 15. Jonathan is confident. He, he doesn't say uh, that the Lord will do this. He, he says he may work for us. The Lord may do this for us. He, he, he says that, that the Lord can save, whether it's by many or by a few. He trusts the power of the Lord, what the Lord can do. And, and what, we, what we know from this or what we can get from this is Jonathan knew the Lord. You, you do not trust something or someone you don't know. Jonathan knew the Lord. He knew how great, how mighty, how powerful, how awesome the Lord is. We're going to sing a song after uh, the sermon 
uh, called Lamb of God. And my favorite line in the whole song, it's verse two, it starts off, it says, how do I dare approach this holy one? God is so different than us. And Jonathan, he knows. He knows how awesome the Lord is. So the plan comes in in verses 7 through 11. He tells his armor bearer, okay, we're going to show ourselves to the Philistines. And, And if they say to us, wait until we come up to you, then it's a no go. We're not attacking. But this is the sign to us. If they say, if they say, come up to us, then we know the Lord has given them into our hand and, and we're going to battle. And, and we don't know how Jonathan knows that. We don't know how the Lord revealed that to him. The author doesn't tell us, but he's confident that this is the sign from the Lord. Verse 12, the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So they go and the battle is on and they take out 20 men on their own. These two guys kill 20 of the Philistines. And it starts this panic in the camp. There's mass confusion in the camp. Meanwhile, in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 14, Israel's watchman, he's, he's got his eyes on the camp here, and, and he sees that something's going on, that something's awry, that, that, that there's chaos in the Philistine camp. So he, he lets Saul, and I'm sure the, the, the leaders of the army know, and they realize that someone must have left the camp. They figure out that it was Jonathan that's there. And they don't fully know what's going on, but Saul realizes, man, now is the time to strike. So Israel takes off and they go and they battle with the Philistines. But this clearly was the Lord's doing. This wasn't just Jonathan and his armor bearer, even Israel come to help. The Lord had thrown them into confusion, so much so that the Philistines were fighting one another in their terror. They're killing their own men. Well, everyone in Israel can see how this is going. Even, even the, the people that were hiding out in the holes and the caves, they suddenly got courage, right? And they start running out of the caves and they join the battle and, and they defeat uh, in this battle uh, the Philistines. Um, now, What's interesting here is, uh, well, it's, it's important first that we know that this is the Lord that did this. It, it was, I think it was because of Jonathan's trust in the Lord and his obedience to the Lord, but it's the Lord that did this. And then in verse 24, if you read this week through our passage, you might have gotten confused in 24 through 30. You know, in a movie, the story's going along, and then all of a sudden, the movie takes you to this flashback, you know what I'm talking about, where the director, the director wants you now to know something that happened previously because it's going to matter for the rest of the story. That happens here in verses 24 through 30. So we flash back to the original battle when he, when he uh, kind of stuck the spear in the, uh, in the hornet's nest, so to speak, and got him going, right? So we know that Saul... Um, that Saul was panicking, right? Because his men were panicking uh, and Samuel hadn't showed up yet. We know that Saul doesn't wait for Samuel, makes the, uh, the burnt offering, but he also tried to control what was going on through this, through a rash oath in verse 24. The men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul 
had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Right? So, so Saul, he, he's, he's again trying to lead. And for whatever reason, he thinks it's a good idea to say, hey, we're not eating until we defeat them, until we beat them, um, until I'm avenged on my enemies. And, and again, the, the difference between how Jonathan speaks and how Saul speaks. For Saul, this sounds like it's about him. It doesn't sound like it's about God's glory. It doesn't sound like it's about God's people. Saul's made this battle with the Philistines about him. There's no mention of Yahweh. This is about avenging himself on his enemies. He is going to do it by forcing his people now into this rash oath. So now we come to verses 25 through 28. The men are walking through the wilderness. They know, they know about this oath, but Jonathan doesn't. He didn't hear it somehow. And there's honey all over the place. The men, they don't eat it. But Jonathan sees the honey. He dips his spear into it and eats some of it. And it's like this, this sugar rush. It says that his eyes were brightened. Well, the men tell Jonathan, oh, whoa, you, you weren't supposed to do that. Your dad told us that, that anyone who, do, who does that, anyone who eats until we defeat them will be cursed. And this is how Jonathan responds in 1429. He says, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. You could boil those words down to what Samuel said to Saul about, uh, about what he had done. You have done foolishly. Right? Jonathan sees this is foolishness. Saul didn't trust the Lord. He didn't seek God like the king of Israel should. He's trying to be the king, but he's forgotten that the king of Israel is a king that's not like all the other nations, right? This king is different, and there's three ways he's different. I think we've got a slide that has this. Yes, there we go. Three ways that the kingship that Saul had is different. One, the Lord made him king. So this king submits to another king, Yahweh. The second is King Saul also submits to Samuel the priest, right? He, he submits to the word of God, which is unlike any other king. And the third, he reigned over people that were not his people. These were always God's people. He was king, Saul was king, but they were not his people. So this flashback is over now, right? We, we come back to the scene, back to Israel, just defeating uh, the Philistines in that second battle, okay? Where, uh, where, where Jonathan and the armor bearer went in and, and killed the 20 guys. So we're back, we're back to there. The battle's over. The Israelites are not in good shape. Right? They're starved. They're faint. They're struggling. They win the battle because of the Lord, but they're hungry. How many of you get hangry? Be honest. You're in church. Be honest. Come on. All right. Okay. This is like hanger way up there. Okay. This is super hanger, I guess. Um, so they, I mean, they're almost mad and they see the spoil. They know now that they can eat because they fulfilled their oath. They didn't eat until they won, and they're so desperate for food that what they do is ignore this long-standing God-given prohibition not to eat meat with the blood still in it. 
because the blood, as we're told in scripture, the blood represents life. The blood was to be used for atoning sacrifices, but the people were hungry. They did not care. They completely ignored it. His, Saul's oath, their leader, their leader's oath led the people into sin. They're still responsible for it, but he led them into sin, into this army-wide disobedience of God's law. Saul gets word of it, right? That they're, that they're doing this thing that Israel knows they're not supposed to do. He tells them, stop sinning. He builds an altar. He makes a sacrifice. So he's trying to play the role of a priest, which he's not a priest. He's the king. It's interesting though, there's no indication that he realizes that it was his foolish oath that had led the people into this. So then we come to verse 36, and Saul seems to think that he has made everything right in, in, uh, uh, in what he's done. And, and he sees that the Philistines are on the run, and he wants to finish them, right? So he says, let's, let's go. Verse 36, then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. Again, no mention of the Lord. It's a lot of us, us, us talk. So different from Jonathan's words back in 14. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or a few. Well, the priest intervenes here with Saul because Saul's just ready to go. And the priest says, let us, draw ne- let us draw near to God here. Saul didn't think of that. Saul's confident that he has things under control. He's looking around at circumstances and he feels like he's got a handle on it. We know what that's like. Right, to go through our day and, and not even think about God because we think everything is under control. We don't even think to seek the Lord. Well, Saul, Saul agrees to seek the Lord, and there's no answer from God, none. And this, this flashes us back to what God said in 8.18 when he's talking about the king that you want. And he says, uh, you'll, you'll cry out to me. And there will be no answer from the Lord on that day. So Saul knows something's up, something's wrong. And, and he, he sets Saul and Jonathan on one side of the camp and the rest of Israel on the other side. And he says, whoever this sin is with, that person's going to die, right? So, so Saul asks the Lord, is it, is it Israel or is it me and Jonathan? Well, it's not Israel. It comes down to Saul and Jonathan. And, and Saul says, is it, is it me or is it Jonathan? And the Lord reveals that it's Jonathan. So uh, Saul says to him, what did you do? <laughs> Fess up. It reminds us of what Samuel said to Saul. What did you do? What have you done? So this is, what, this is basically what Jonathan says. He says, I, I tasted a little honey. With the, with the tip of my spear, here I am, I will die. I think he's being really sarcastic here. I could be wrong, but, but I think he's saying, here's my great sin, dad. I had a little bit of honey. I'm ready to die for it. Uh, he's telling his dad, like, this is ridiculous. This is foolishness. You can't be serious. And Saul basically says, you're dead. But the people intervene. Verse 45, there's no way they're going to let Jonathan die. They say, shall, uh, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not, 
uh, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. They could see that Jonathan was working with the Lord. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. There's no way they were going to let him die. They could see that Jonathan was the one that was trusting the Lord. He's not the one acting like a fool. Well, verse or chapter 14 ends with basically a summary of Saul's reign as the king in 47 through 52. His, his reign as king is effectively over uh, at this point. And there's obviously more than, than the book even goes into about his reign, but he's, he, he's not done being king because of uh, lack of military skill. He's done being king, as we've seen, because he has not trusted and obeyed the Lord. And I think Saul's failure is one that we can relate to. Saul's failure is our failure. We know, we know how hard it is at times to trust the Lord. Now, when life is going great, it's, it's pretty easy for us to trust the Lord. But when life gets hard, it's really difficult for us to trust the Lord. It's hard for us to see that his ways are good, that his ways are best. And so we try and manipulate and redefine obedience, maybe, rather than trusting and obeying the Lord. Israel and Saul, they were, they were told that they needed to obey both Israel and their king. And if they did, it would go well. But if they didn't, God's hand will be against you. Israel knew this. Saul knew this. But I wonder for us, as we, as we hear chapter 13, or as we read chapter 13, we put ourselves in Saul's shoes. The, the men are, are taking off. Samuel said he was going to be there, but he hasn't shown up on time. And, and then he disobeys. But I wonder if we're sympathetic to him. Because I think we're supposed to be, as we read this, I think we're supposed to realize that we get it, that, that we relate to how hard it can be to trust God. When life is falling apart around us, sometimes trusting and obeying God feels like, like everything within us is, is against that. Um, so I don't know if you've ever been rappelling like off a cliff, right? I'm not a fan of rock climbing, but rappelling I think is really fun. I've got to do it a couple times. And, um, and I think trusting God is kind of like this, like you've got all your gear, right? The rope and, and I went with guides. So I'm going with professionals um, and, and they gear me up and they walk me through it. And, and I've seen other people go and, and, and my heart's pounding. Like I'm not a courageous person and I'm standing on the edge of this cliff I've got the rope and the harness and everything. I've got the rope behind me. And then they say, okay, just lean back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I lean back over a cliff. There's, uh, there's nothing in you that goes, yes, that is what I should do. Even though intellectually I'd seen it. I saw all these people were fine. Like little kids did this. They were fine. Like I can do this. And yet I'm there holding onto the rope. My heart's pounding and I can't get my body to do what I know I'm supposed to do. Eventually I did, but that's not the point for this story. I guess I want you to know I'm not a total coward. Um, the point is, it's like that trusting God sometimes, right? It can be so hard. So we read about Saul and, and we get it. We understand how difficult it can be. 
Let's jump into chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words. I wonder if he said them that slow. Listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted that Amalek, uh, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That is a really hard verse. And I was tempted to just stop it, devote to destruction all that they have. I think we read passages like this and, 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 and we say, wow, why? And maybe you're not there anymore. Maybe you've worked through this, you've wrestled through this. But at some point, all of us, I think, should ask this why question. Why, God? Why would you want them to kill Children and infants, this seems, or this is, it doesn't seem, this is, this is hard. And I got to this section, I'm like, oh man, this should be a whole sermon. Uh, we don't have time for that today. So let me give you some bullet point thoughts on this. Uh, the first is God owes us nothing at all. Right? Every breath that we take in is a gift to us. It is grace to us that we have life at all because we're sinners, right? What we deserve is judgment and death. So every breath that we have, this is God's grace on our lives. We think, whether we say it or not, we think that everyone should be able to live to a ripe old age. And if they don't, then that's not right. God owes us nothing God is just in everything he does, including his judgment. My guess is that if you do believe God's word, as you've read the story of Noah and the flood, you have no problem there with that judgment. And maybe that's because we paint Noah's ark everywhere and we tell the story almost like it's a fairy tale. But that was judgment on a way bigger scale than what we're talking about here with the Amalekites. Right? There were there were babies in the flood that, that drowned that day, right? But we've, we trust, or I'm going like this because I hope you trust that God is just in every decision, including his righteous judgment. The Amalekites had violently opposed Israel since their exodus from Egypt. It's alluded to there. I think it's back in Exodus 17. Right? They, they've been coming violently at Israel. So not only have they rejected God, Yahweh, as the Lord, but they've gone after his people through, through whom he has made a covenant with. Right? And part of this covenant is that God would bless the whole world, all the nations, through his people. So when the Amalekites come at God's people trying to wipe them out. How long do you think God will be patient with them? Right? There, there will be a time where it runs out and judgment comes. So this is hard for us to read this judgment. Um, but I wonder how much of that has to do 
with how lightly we understand our sin. Right? We, we don't, we probably don't think, man, I actually deserve hell. I actually deserve eternal death, eternal separation from God, eternal judgment. But the good news is God sent Jesus to take our place on the cross that he willingly took on the wrath of God that we deserved for all who trust in him as their savior. And his resurrection means that we can have life with him and in him and not fear the judgment that will come as bad as the flood was. Man, final judgment will be worse. We can rest if we trust in Jesus and the loving kindness of God through Jesus, his son. There's a lot more that can be said, but let me, let me end these comments with Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If you want to talk more about that, I would love to talk with you. One of our elders, we'd love to talk with you about that. But we've, we've got to keep going here. Chapter 15, uh, 4 through 9. So Israel, they win, they win the battle but they don't devote everything to destruction like they've been told to do. They devoted to destruction what they decided was worthless. Okay, They spared King Agag. They spared all the, the good-looking sheep and oxen that were without blemish. So Saul and his people have redefined obedience. And this is what God says to Samuel in verse 11, he says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So then Samuel arrives and Saul greets him like everything's good. Samuel asks, why do I hear sheep and oxen? Right? They're supposed to be destroyed is, is what he doesn't say. And Saul says, the people spared them so that we could make a sacrifice to the Lord. And that sounds so good, right? To make a sacrifice to the Lord. That sounds like something God might want, but it's just an excellent justification, right? He was told what God wanted. So Samuel tells him what the Lord has said to him about regretting making Saul the king. Verse 17, Samuel said, though you're little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He just blamed the people for keeping these things. Samuel saying, you're the king. You're the one in charge of those people. Verse 18, the Lord, uh, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to, to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they're consumed. Why then? Did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil 
and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul says, I did obey. I did what I was supposed to do. I went on the mission God sent me on. Look, I brought Agag with me, their king, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, he blames the people again, but the people took the spoil to sacrifice to God. It is possible, and I don't know, but it's possible that Saul really believes in this moment that he obeyed. And it's just a reminder to me, man, we're so good at deceiving ourselves. If, if we have an, an inkling of something we desire that's not of God, we are so skilled in justifying what we want. At times to the point that we convince ourselves that we're right. This is what God says in verse 22. Samuel said, has the Lord as great divine Uh, delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I can't tell if Saul gets it at this point or not. I mean, verse 22 makes a ton of sense. Yes, of course, God would rather have our obedience than a sacrifice, right? We make sacrifices because of disobedience. Of course, God wants us to obey him. Saul, he had tried over and over again to redefine obedience, what was good, what, what, what he thought or what he wanted uh, the Lord to want from him. But God wants us to trust and obey him. Well, ultimately, Saul is told that the kingdom has been torn from him, that it will be given to someone else of the Lord's choosing. And chapter 15 ends, uh, it's, it's depressing how it ends as, as we see Uh, this unfaithful people, this unfaithful king, and yet we know the faithfulness of Yahweh. Next week we get to see the the God of reversal to this disobedient people and this disobedient king. But how do we we trust God? Back to the whole repelling thing, trying to tell yourself to, to lean off the cliff. How do we trust and obey the Lord? Well, the first thing is you cannot trust who you do not know. Paul tells us in Colossians that he prays for the the church at Colossae, that they would increase in knowing the Lord, right? That their knowledge of who God is would increase, not just intellectually, but, but, but in their hearts that permeate all of who they are, that they would know God in a real way, in a personal way. And we, we do so much of that by getting into scripture, Right, by, by reading the word. This is, this is a meal that we need to eat every day. Right? And, it's, and it's a meal that, that we, we just need to feast on God's word. I know sometimes I get in, in this habit. I don't know if it's because I'm stressed out in my day or, or what it is. But I'll get into reading and I just blitz through it. Right? As if all I need to do is check off that I read today. No, we need to grow in knowing him so that we can know 
who he is, how, how trustworthy he is, that he is good, that he is unwavering, that he has the power like Jonathan knew, the power to do all he says, that he doesn't need a big army to do it. God can do it any way he wants. Numbers 23, 19, I love this. It says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, uh, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? No, the Lord is trustworthy. Psalm 89, 34, God says, I will not violate my covenant or alter my word that went forth from my lips. Man, we trust, we trust God also by remembering what he has done, by remembering back to his faithfulness over and over again. Solomon, as he's talking to the people, he said this in 1 Kings 8, 56. He said, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And we can trust the Lord. Uh, I think um, Matthew 7, Jesus uh, gives a brief illustration that's really helpful. He talks about uh, two, two people that want to build houses. And you probably know this one, right? There's one that builds the house on, on, on the foundation of rock. Right? He says, this is the wise builder. And then the other one builds a house on a foundation of sandy. He calls this builder the foolish builder. And you can be like me and not be handy at all and understand this. You don't have to have built a house to know that the foundation on rock will be good. But Jesus says, the foundation on sand, when the rain comes, when the winds come, the flood, the storms, man, that foundation's going to go and that house will fall Fools ignore Jesus' words and build their life on a foundation of sand. But Jesus tells us that hearing and listening, doing, obeying is like building your house on a rock. And if you want to follow the Lord, that's what we do. We, we trust and obey his words. That's, that's our foundation. Let me pray. God, you are so, so good, Lord. Yeah, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, that we're not left wandering trying to figure out what you want from us, but, but you've given us what you want, Lord, that, that we're to be a people that, that follow after you, a people that are obedient to you. And, and one of those things you told us to do is go and make disciples to, to let everyone know uh, how good you are and that there is salvation Lord, I pray for us as a body that we would get better at trusting and obeying you, that, that we would more and more readily lean into you and rest into you and realize that you are the Lord, that you know what you're doing, that you are good. God, as we sing these songs, as we partake in communion, Lord, you have your way in our hearts, Lord. If there are things that you need to speak to us, if there are areas where, where we're not trusting, areas that we're justifying things, would you, would you be so gracious as to shine light into darkness, Lord? It's in your name we pray. Amen.